0: On Monday, January 27, 2020, the U.S. Supreme Court issued an order allowing the Trump administration to implement a wealth test for immigrants in an attempt to weed out those who would qualify as a public charge. A public charge, for those of you who don't know, is an individual whose livelihood is primarily dependent on government assistance. The order passed on a 5-4 vote These new restrictions will broaden the criteria for public charges drastically. If you rely on Medicaid or federal housing assistance, you could qualify as a public charge. Furthermore, factors such as age, financial resources, and education history can be considered in the application process. This ruling targets the working-class immigrants of America and makes their pathway to permanent residency extremely difficult, if not possible for some. This may manifest in working-class immigrants suspending their benefits and compromising their quality of life in order to obtain permanent residency. It disproportionately affects immigrants coming from non-speaking English countries as they make up a heavy percentage of the immigrant working class. And this should concern us all. If you think you or your family member may be affected by this rule and have any questions, please call the free Action NYC hotline 1-800-354-0365. And now to our today's guest.
1: I actually got a lot of backlash after 2016 like just because i was questioning whether hillary was a strong enough candidate against trump and you know a lot of fellow democrats you know came at me and was like no like we need to unite for the party and you know and i was like i absolutely am going to vote hillary clinton of course but i also have to question whether she's the strongest person
0: Annie Tan is a Chinese-American special education teacher, writer, activist, and storyteller from Chinatown in New York. Annie has been featured in the New York Times, the Huffington Post, and the Moth Radio Hour on NPR. She will be featured in the upcoming PBS documentary series, Asian Americans. Her work centers around public education, teachers' unions, tenants' rights, and Asian-American issues. Previously, a teacher in Chicago, and he now teaches Latinx and Asian students in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. After school, Annie tells stories on stages about being Chinese American and a daughter of immigrants. And Annie is working on an epic book about her family's history and legacy in America. I am so excited to welcome her on my show. Welcome, Annie! So happy to have you here. Hi, Sadia. I, I just want to make sure. I yes, pronounce it's her. Sadia. Sadia, beautiful. Yeah. So there is so much to unpack, mm-hmm. but we will start with recent Supreme Court's order, right? According to which the Trump administration is allowed to deny Green Card or citizenship to immigrants who would classify as a public charge. And I have explained what that means. Mm -hmm. If this order were in place when your parents came in the early 80s,
1: how would it have impacted their journey to America? Mm -hmm. So my parents, from my knowledge, came because family requested, you know, my grandmother to come to America, and my grandmother's sister was like, hey, come to America. And then once my grandmother came, she requested my mom and then my dad to come to America. And with just the green card rolling, they, you know, They would not have been able to get here and survive here because, you know, my parents as working class immigrants, Mm -hmm. they were trying to figure out where they were going to go in the first place. I was actually doing a family history searching trip this summer. So I found out, you know, my grandmother first was in Detroit for a while Mm and was trying to figure out how to make her life happen there. But that wasn't happening. Then she went to Illinois where some family was and figured out that wasn't going to work. And she took a chance and had a family friend in New York. So that's how my grandma and my parents and that side of the family ended up in New York in the first place. And it was with the support of people in the community, just anyone you knew really, that's how you got to America in the 80s. And the Chinese diaspora itself is, you know, up till like the 90s and 2000s, it was a lot of working class immigrants coming to America. It wasn't it wasn't like now where there are a lot more rich Chinese hmm. people moving to America. Prior to like the 80s, of course, you know, there there was just limited immigration in general from the Chinese diaspora because of Mao Zedong. And also just prior to the 1965 Immigration Act, you know, more Chinese people couldn't move to America. Mm-hmm. So the ones who were moving here were graduate students and people who may have come from more pri- privileged backgrounds. Mm-hmm. But in the 80s and 90s, it was much more poorer Chinese immigrants. You know, the people in the Chinese diaspora, like my family comes from southern China in the Guangdong province, in the Toisan province. And there are more people living outside of China from my province mm-hmm. right now than actually in Toisan right now. And what's the reason for that? I think there was just extreme poverty, mm-hmm. people looking for a better life. I know as the one-child policy was in effect, as the second daughter, or second child, I'm the second, you know, I'm the first daughter for the second child, I wouldn't have been born if, you know, my parents didn't come to America.
0: And that's something that I wanted to talk to you about because you're... Parents' journey to America is pretty much shaped by a very tragic event. Mm -hmm. And this event is related to Vincent Chin. Mm -hmm. He was a Chinese man who was beaten to death in 1982, I believe, Mm -hmm. after being mistaken for a Japanese man. Yes during the Detroit auto workers crisis when Japanese were being blamed for the loss of American jobs. Yes. Sounds pretty familiar. Mm -hmm. Um, So his murder led to this pan-Asian American movement where people started identifying themselves, not just by their ethnicities, but also by the term Asian American. Yes. But that tragedy is personal to your family.
1: Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. So... I learned this also recently. So, well, just to backtrack, uh, when I was 13, you know, I'm watching this documentary and, you know, learning about myself as a kid of Chinese immigrants. And I'm watching this documentary on PBS called Becoming American, The Chinese Experience. And, you know, the last 20 minutes talk about the case, the Vincent Chin case. And my mom comes over and it's like, gao," that's Cantonese mm. for, that's your older male cousin. Mm. And I'm like, what? You know, and... My mom says nothing about it. No one in my family says anything about it, um, and I find out later it's because you know Vincent Chin was killed, beaten to death by a baseball bat. Uh, his killers, two white auto workers, never served a day in jail, and are living their lives right now and haven't paid my family a cent. And we lost the cases. You know, we had my family had many, many cases go to trial, and Vincent never got justice for his murder. And so I I think like my family and a lot of Asian-Americans are like, you know, are hesitant sometimes to rock the boat. Right. But there are also examples like the Vincent Chin case where thousands and thousands of people came together to march for justice. And we forget that history sometimes because we don't learn it in school. Right. And as a special education teacher and a lot of my students, first Chinese American teacher, you know, for me, it's very important to share the history. I, you know, last year was the first year I shared about this history of my students. Anyway, so I found out through this journey that Vincent Chin's mother, Lily Chin, is my maternal grandmother's sister. So I just said earlier that my grandmother, you know, she came from all these places. She first went to Detroit to try to support Lily Chin Mm -hmm. after the murder of her son. And so my grandmother, because she didn't want to learn how to drive, she ended up going to uh, to Illinois and then finally to New York where we live now. But my other relatives ended up staying in Detroit. And I have lots of relatives all through the country that basically settled where they could find work, Mm -hmm. you know. And it's because of my grandmother and my grandmother's sisters that Lily Chin was able to, you know, go all over the nation and speak up and speak out for Vincent Chin. And that's why we know the Vincent Chin case today. And, you know, I was talking to Helen Zia about this, who is a lead activist, was one of the lead activists and organizers on the case. And she said, without Lily, like, there would be no Vincent Chin case that we know about today. So it took my create Auntie Lily Chin's courage to have Asian Americans speak up and know what the term Asian American meant in the first place. You know, and I think so many people in the 80s were afraid to say something. So when you you say,
0: Annie, people were afraid. And this is something that I can pretty much relate to. Mm -hmm. It's same for South Asian communities as well. South Asian communities, even like whether immigrants or non-immigrants, they don't talk about politics. They right. steer clear of all controversy, anything like it's they're They're focused on their jobs. They're focused on their stable careers. Why do you think that is the case? And has it changed within the Chinese community
1: over the years? I think it's never been the case. It's the myth that we all came with, right, mm-hmm. when a lot of us moved here or were born here that we're not supposed to rock the boat. But if you look back in history, like, I just learned that there was an 1867 Chinese railroad strike, right? There was a 1982 garment worker strike the summer that Vincent Chin was killed. There are all these things in Asian American history that happened that we don't know about. If you look at, like, the 1975 Peter Yu beating uh, and the protest in New York mm. for that, there there is a rich history of Asian American resistance. And when I talk about people being afraid, of course people were afraid, but that doesn't mean there wasn't resistance. I think people hear, you know, the traditional, like, wisdom of don't rock the boat. You know, you should be focused on your job or the opportunities in front of you. And there are a lot of things you can lose by speaking up. You know, if you You know, speak up like I heard on your podcast about Jennifer Asif, right? Her family like speaking up about her husband like being fed pork, Mm -hmm. right? Then immediately the day after his application was denied for his green card, right? I believe. And so there is a fear and a possible loss in speaking up that people see. But that's because of a popular narrative of fear that people spread. It doesn't mean you can't win, though, right? Mm -hmm. In my family's case, right, you know, as I said earlier, you, my family doesn't talk about Vincent because we lost the case and it was tragic. And, you know, I think it was a foregone conclusion to a lot of my family members that, of course, these two guys who killed Vincent are going to jail like this is a home run, Mm -hmm. you know, case. But they weren't. And so I think my family lost faith in the American justice system as a result, as many have, unfortunately, and so now we've had to find creative ways to resist, unfortunately. So what
0: are some of those creative ways that you mm-hmm. think are more effective?
1: So I've worked with organizations like CAV in New York City that fight for tenants' rights. And they fought like very well against uh, no new Amazon. Right. And. Hundreds of organizations throughout New York City who are fighting against gentrification and the loss of jobs for working class people here in New York came together and, you know, started these campaigns and and Amazon backed out, right? And there are lots of examples of cases like that here in New York and across the nation of people resisting. If you look at the nationwide teacher strikes and teacher walkouts that are illegal in certain states because there are no unions, those are all wildcat strikes that teachers on the ground were like, no, like we need more for our students. It wasn't just fighting for salaries or healthcare benefits. It was fighting for pencils in classrooms, for there not to be mold in classrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's happening all across the nation, not just with Asian-Americans, but with teachers, with nurses, with all kinds of workers. The Black Lives Matter movement is a beautiful movement of people who have 13 principles that we're going to be starting to teach uh, this February, the first week of February. It's the Black Lives Matter Week of Action that teaches things like empathy and intergenerational uh, principles, right, to our students. So there are all these loving ways where people come together and resist right now in the face of tremendous oppression um, Hmm. that's happening under 45. I'm not going to call him my president. (laughs) Um, because I don't consider him my president. And it's hard, too, because we also have to win the hearts and minds of people. I know a number of Trump supporters here in New York City. Right. And some people are always like, Annie, like, how are there Trump voters here? I was like, they do exist. Yeah, they absolutely do. Right. And it's and a lot of them, like I talked to one and he was like, I am a fiscal conservative. I just can't Support anything the Democrats do on welfare because I've seen a lot of my family members, you know Take advantage of the welfare system. And so for him He's not he thinks Trump is crazy. He thinks Trump like is doing terrible things He does not believe in ice, right? But he cannot vote for the Democrats based on other issues So how can I win that kind of person over right? How can I win like Republicans who Are trying to protect their houses and who support tax cuts, right? There are these people who exist with us, right? That can be swayed if we talk to them like they're human beings and we understand their issues too. So there's lots of pieces to this struggle that we're all facing. If we alienate people like the Trump administration is alienating many immigrants and people of color right now, then we treat them as the other too, and then we can't We can't unite. It's very divisive. And I do believe that they want the best for themselves, but we have to work together to understand the collective interests. Like, that's what climate change activism is about, too, right? That we have to stop climate change from happening. But how do we win the hearts and minds of people? How do we fight the hopelessness of climate change? And how do we do so in a way where individuals will... Call on each other to be accountable and call on the fossil fuel industry and big corporations that are responsible for the majority of these fossil fuels being put in the environment to actually do something about it. So I read
0: that you were a Bernie delegate in yes. 2016. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge Bernie supporter. <laughs> so, uh, Me too. yeah, but what are your thoughts on what happened recently with Joe Rogan's endorsement of Bernie and mm-hmm. how that endorsement was basically plastered everywhere. Mm. Now, my from my vantage point, anybody can endorse him, right? Mm-hmm. That everybody has the right to endorse whoever yes. they want to endorse. Mm-hmm. But someone like Joe Rogan, who's basically, who is an Islamophobe and who is a homophobe and mm-hmm. who said and invited guests who are controversial. And doesn't question them on his podcast. And doesn't question them on his podcast. How do we, like, could they have
1: done a better job of not publicizing it as much? Mm-hmm. So... I don't run anything with the Bernie Sanders campaign. I actually haven't done as much on the Bernie Sanders campaign as I want to. I actually got a lot of backlash after 2016 Why? like just because I was questioning whether Hillary was a strong enough candidate against Trump. And, you know, a lot of fellow Democrats, you know, came at me and was like, "No, like we need to unite for the party and, you know, and I was like, "I absolutely am going to vote Hillary Clinton, of course, but I also have to question whether she's the strongest person, you know, and that's my right as a voter to really think about that. And, you know, I think prior to Trump's election, right, a lot of people just had a foregone conclusion that we all did. Like, we thought Hillary was going to win. And then after Trump was elected through the Electoral College, that a lot of people thought, oh, my goodness, like, we are not as united as I thought. But also I'm going to attack these other people who could even question Hillary in the first place and say, no, you are you are the one dividing us. I was like, that's not the case here. I'm trying to ask your opinions and I'm asking honest questions that there should be nothing wrong with that in politics. And then I retreated and like you're you were talking about with your family that you just don't talk politics anymore Mm -hmm. because you're scared of like actually putting yourself out there, you know, and. With the Joe Rogan endorsement, you know, it's hard because I've had a lot of Bernie supporters tell me, like, and it's true that Joe Rogan has started deleting tweets of his that, like, look racist and homophobic and transphobic.
0: Is it some kind of, like, evolution or reformation that we are
1: looking at? Right. And that's exactly what my friends are saying. I I was like, oh, like, we can hate on Joe Rogan, right, and alienate him like, and call him out for all the things that he's done wrong. And we can call him in if he's endorsing Bernie for the right reasons, right? Which is a hard thing. Like, this is something I've had to learn in the past four years, that we do have to call in people while also calling out their problematic, you know, characteristics, right? We can't say Joe Rogan, like, you are completely 100% welcome, you know? I think Joe Rogan knows very well that he's problematic. He knows this. He also knows he's a very, very popular podcaster, one of the most like listened to podcasts, right? And he knows this. He must know this, right? So it's hard for me as, you know, someone who does want Bernie to win. And I I think Bernie is my candidate because he is the only one people are actually ex- like really excited about and are willing to create a transformation for. And he has intergenerational support and yeah. he has working class support. And that's what we need right now. And I don't support Joe Rogan at all. If he is in his reformation state, right, maybe, I don't know, (laughs) but I don't support him. But if he's using his wider platform to say, hey, like, listen to Bernie Sanders's ideas, right, and you as an informed voter get to decide for yourself, go for it.
0: Yeah. So let's pivot a little and talk about your family. So I was listening to your story on The Moth Radio Mm -hmm. Hour, and it was such an interesting story, and you're a great um, narrator. Mm -hmm. I could relate to so much of it as an immigrant mother. Mm -hmm. And I see some of the things that you were talking about in terms of your relationship with your parents. Mm -hmm. Uh, One thing that you mentioned was how your parents express love yes and you said that like you you see your like around you your friends and others whose whose parents say i love you a lot and mm-hmm. they are very expressive and very vocal about that and your parents don't express love in that particular form and i it got me thinking because i do the same thing mm-hmm. i don't tell my daughters that i love them
1: mm-hmm.
0: And I think it is probably Eastern cultures. Mm -hmm. I think we are not as expressive because, A, our assumption is that as a parent, it's given that we love our kids. Yeah. So it just seems a bit, I guess, from our vantage point, fake, saying it again and again. Yeah. But at the same time, I think as second generation American, and I see that with my kids as well, I think... You guys, I think you probably try to compare what your parents do to the American American culture, Mm -hmm. to the American pop culture. And you consider that as a reference point. So my daughter will say, why don't you say you love me? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, because I do. Why do I have to say it so many times? So, Annie, do you think there's a middle ground where kids and parents... Um, come to some some kind of an understanding of mm-hmm. how you know two cultures merge in the same household
1: so i highly highly recommend this book to everybody the five love languages book uh. that's really how i understood right my parents do love me of course they love me it's just we don't say in cantonese <laughs> like my parents don't speak english like that is not something they grew up saying like my mom will just put out 12 courses of food. Like Exactly. Uh, I just celebrated the Chinese New Year with my family. And I can say Chinese New Year because I'm Chinese, but it's the Lunar New Year for the rest of us. And, <laughs> and you know, like my mom had like the crispy pork and the glass noodles and the chicken, the whole chicken with the uh, head on it. And that's the way she expresses it, you know. And she also holds my hand. You know, she still holds my hand. I'm 30 years old. Like, when we walk on the street together, she holds my hand, right? There are just different ways she shows her affection. My dad doesn't talk. He's not ever a talker. But, you know, when he was mad at me one day, like, to still show me he was fine, he was like, you want a cabbage? (laughs) Or, like, you want these uh, red peppers that we got? And for him, it's it's not gift-giving. It's the... Quality time we have together, even though we don't talk that much, mm-hmm. it's the time at the dinner table and it's the acts of service he can do, right? So, like, I, I would recommend you reading it with your daughter. The, the whole book is literally like, how do you talk to one another? How do you communicate your love when one person's a gift giver and the other person's <laughs> full of physical touch? Do you have to learn to do physical touch for your partner and that partner learns to give you gifts, right? Mm. And it's, it's that simple. And it's not something we learn in school. It's something I've only read, like, in the past few years. And once I understood that, I was like, oh, I have to... Like, I'm a terrible gift giver. My parents don't give gifts. We grew up poor. Like, that's just not how we do things. Like, I've given my mom a $100 watch, and she just puts it away. Like, given her earrings, she just puts it away. But if I just sit next to her, you know, that's all she wants. Yeah. You know, so... Yeah, highly, highly recommend. And there's all the versions. Like, there's one for teenagers. There's the ones for kids. Like, you know, they've made a whole industry (laughs) from the five love languages. But I I really do think, one, like, everyone should know their love language. There's, like, you know, the free quizzes online that you can find that, like, tells you I'm a mix of quality, time, and acts of service. And most people are what they grew up with. But you can learn to be physical touch. And you can learn to be gift-giving if, you know— You you didn't grow up that way, and you're learning Cantonese for your parents so that you
0: can communicate well
1: with them. How is that
0: process going?
1: So I'm uh, starting again Cantonese classes tomorrow. So right now, a lot of it is just learning grammar Mm -hmm. and learning different idioms that I wouldn't learn otherwise, but. A lot of it is knowing how to look up things in the dictionary, having access to my Cantonese teacher and Cantonese friends who speak with me so that I can talk to my dad for more than 30 seconds a day over the phone calls. Because, you know, when I grew up here, like, all I really knew were the food words. <laughs> because, like, my fam, as I just said, like, they feed me food. That's their main communication. But they were working all the time. My dad worked six days a week as a construction worker and my mom was either working at the bakeries or at the sweatshops. And they didn't speak to us much because they were just tired at the end of the day. So no wonder, like, you know, my my main vocabulary came with American culture, including all these suburban-based, like, sitcoms that all say, like, all have family members saying, I love you. So, of course, <laughs> I'm expecting to hear I love you, but, you know, it's not coming. And so, like, I think for, like, like 10, 20 years, like, I was like, oh, my God. I'm gonna get disowned. my parents don't love me. It's totally conditional love. They only like love me because I went to Columbia and <laughs> like I have a good job, and like I did everything they expected, like what more, right? But that's not actually what like made love happen for my family and me. It's just being together and having dinner and you know, I lived in Chicago for five years, and I realized after the five year mark, like I needed to be home because. You know, once I read that Love Languages book, I was like, my parents just need me there. Mm -hmm. They can't call me over the phone. That's not their love language. But your parents wanted you
0: to live with them. So you moved out a couple of years ago. Yeah. And that was not an easy transition. No, and again, that's something that I can so relate to because in in South Asian cultures, it's the same thing. Even if you're hundred years old, your parents want you to live with them. Yes, uh, and in fact, it's frowned upon uh, if you move out and leave your parents alone. Right. Um. We are still being told that we should move back to Pakistan right. and you know live with our parents. Right. How was that transition,
1: and how did your parents adjust? Mm-hmm. So. I think for my parents, like, as they're, they, they retired recently. So they, they retired maybe a little over a year ago. So they've had a lot more time to talk to people in the community in Chinatown. And, you know, like, my mom is just straight up was just like, yeah, my friend, like, at least our daughter comes home for dinner. (laughs) Like... I like their their daughters, my friend's daughter like doesn't even come home. they just want to be with their boyfriend all the time <laughs> you know and and so, as my parents got to know different chinese American experiences, you know, with other older generation people, like you know they're they're seeing like there are different possibilities other than the one they came with, and there are other possibilities for me, too, right? that like I can choose to be home you know that yeah. that can be definitely a choice. If I want it to be a choice and, you know... It's not so black and white. It's not like they're wrong for wanting me home or I'm wrong for wanting to be home either. Like, we but all How do you yeah.
0: explain this? Because it is such an anomaly in a way. Right. For, uh, because, like, for millennials, American culture, we're right? supposed to move out, right? Yeah, but I've heard millennials are moving back. Yes. <laughs> so that's an. But if we look at American culture, parents want their
1: kids out, like, at 18. But at the same time, like, we are the first generation where. Mm-hmm. Uh, our younger generation is not going to make more money than the older.
0: Mm.
1: That's that's the reality of our situation right now where however many trillions of dollars in student debt and healthcare costs are making. I think I saw a statistic that like if someone has cancer, like 40 percent of them go into bankruptcy, mm. you know, so like this situation is not tenable for anyone who happens to get sick. Like and if you are a poor it basically takes like 20 plus years of basically nothing going wrong in order for you to be able to like survive in this society and to overcome poverty so if you're looking at that and lots of my teacher friends like not being able to pay off their student loans until they're 60 you can't possibly like just move out and buy a home especially not in New York City you know it's like, there there are expectations, like, in the 90s and the 2000s, like, maybe. But also, like, the baby boomer population, like, you hear Elizabeth Warren, like, talking about how she was able to go to college. And tuition was $400. Yeah. So, of course, they're able to, like, buy a house immediately after graduation because the jobs that existed back then were good union jobs. And unions, like, you know, they are being decimated right now um which is why I'm such a hardcore union activist as well and I was very active in the Chicago Teachers Union and I'm trying to make my union the United Federation of Teachers here better um with a lot of other teachers here but there's there's a lot that is happening in our society right now that people don't see shifting that has shifted so much and so we have to change the way we're looking at our society right now. So
0: you're thinking societal norms are going to all these economic changes. Absolutely. And whatever is happening. And racial. And and, racial, yeah. Right?
1: So a lot of people, you know, attack Bernie Sanders on his lack of racial analysis. He's got it. He just doesn't say it very often because, like, and I'm I'm not going to explain it, you know, because I'm not, like, going to defend Bernie. He's got to say more about race, right? But also most of his vote, like... Most of his voting base right now, it's majority people of color, Yeah. right? So the Bernie bro narrative is wrong because it's mostly women and it's mostly people (laughs) of color. And so when you're just looking at the larger society in what uh, Hari Kondabolu's album is waiting for 2042, right? Which is the year that uh, America will become a majority people of color, right? And so things have to change.
0: Don't you think that's why we have Trump mm. as president? That that fear of majority people of color in America, is is that is that fear driving so much negative policy and whatever is going on?
1: Well, this is this is what I always say. Hillary's campaign slogan was, right, like, I'm with her. It wasn't a stand of here's hope, here is going to be change. Like Obama's was, yes we can, right? You look at Trump, it's actually there's a verb in there. <laughs> uh, not I am with her, it is make America great again, which is terrible, right? <laughs> Completely xenophobic, right? But at the same time, you know, th- there is a call for change in there, right? And people want change, people want hope, people want that. And this is not to defend Trump in any way at all. But People want hope and people want a sense that things will change for the better for them. And so what I'm saying is that if you've got a candidate, you know, who is fear-mongering and you don't have a counter-narrative that's saying we can be hopeful, and a lot of people will disagree with me saying, like, having a female president is hopeful. But, but in what way? Like, exactly. what, what change can you have for... So many people who are in debt, who are going through bankruptcy, who are seeing the societal shift. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you need candidates who are hopeful, who can like make mass movement happen. And like politicians alone aren't going to do that. Right. It takes all of us to yeah. do it. So I think moving on to the 2020 elections, it has to be a hopeful candidate. Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez is just such a huge proponent of change and hope. And that's why people are so scared of her right now. The Republican Party is scared, right? Because she represents that. Yeah. Right. And that's the only thing that can change fear and hopelessness is hope. That's true. Let's talk about your teaching. Now
0: you mm-hmm. teach Latinx, black and Arab students. I currently don't teach any black students,
1: oh, but I have taught black students you in have the past. Taught, right. Yeah. And and teaching is your passion. Yes. I am and, in my eighth year teaching right now. And
0: you focus a lot on relationship building mm-hmm. as, a, as a teacher. Yes. But you're also wary of the hurdles along the way. Mm-hmm. And you wrote in one of your articles and I quote, I connected with my Latino students knowing that it's hard to be bicultural or multicultural in an American society that prizes white bodies and norms. Mm-hmm. How do you help your students understand the cultural and the racial nuances Mm -hmm. and help them be better people
1: when they grow up. Right. I heard this in seventh grade from my teacher, Mr. Faulkner, uh, and he said, we learn history because we don't want history to repeat itself. And that's exactly why I tell my students that, you know, I'm teaching current events right now and I'm teaching about different history and I'm lucky to be teaching the fifth grade curriculum where, you know, we learn about just the geography of the Western Hemisphere and we learn about indigenous populations that were there, the Aztec, the Inca, the Mayan populations. And we teach based on, like, their aliveness and their culture now, not just that they this culture existed in the past, but that these people exist today and we should celebrate these cultures. And then we talk about the age of exploration with uh, Europeans coming in, you know, and we talk about uh, indigenous people's genocides. And, you know, it coincides around the time that, you know, it's Columbus Day. And I ask, why do people celebrate Columbus Day? Mm -hmm. And my students, you know, like, I think it is my job as a teacher to teach the facts, including that uh, Columbus's arrival led to the genocides of Native American peoples and indigenous peoples and that he took slaves and he he was not a saint by any means, right? And this also comes from a person who went to Columbia who was named after Columbus. And <laughs> so, you know, I had a student last year. He was like, Miss Tan, why do we celebrate Columbus Day? How could we celebrate this guy who like killed all these people? Like nine out of ten died. You know, I was like, Go for it. Like, talk about it. And the class decided we can't celebrate Columbus Day, Mm. you know. And then, you know, then I talked about how places like Seattle, like, now call Columbus Day Indigenous Peoples Day, right? So, a lot of it is just presenting the facts. That means I have to learn the facts. I have to learn what white supremacy looks like. Mm. And the narratives that come across, like, in textbooks. Like, I learned about, like, three Asian American events in history. It was the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882, that was because I took AP uh, U.S. history, Mm -hmm. right? Japanese internment and the Vietnam War. So
0: it was not part of regular history books. It was just like, uh, if you took AP class, that's how you
1: would know. Right. And so, like, if, I mean, how much Asian American history do do your children learn, Mm -hmm. right? In the U.S. education system. And... Like, how many Black and Latinx people do they learn about? It's not very many at all. And even
0: the books that are taught, right? Right. Those books are not written by people who are culturally diverse or racially diverse. No. Which is another tragedy. Right. A travesty because... You want different perspectives. Right. You will not get different perspectives if you have a very homogenous set of writers or academics teaching or writing those books.
1: And there are people in New York City looking through our curriculum and discovering that 90% of the books that are being taught are by white authors. Yeah, I'm not surprised at all. Right. And so how can we have a diverse curriculum and have teachers teaching if we didn't learn it as kids? Because that's what I was taught, right? I've had to unlearn all of this. But that's because I want to unlearn this. And I go to professional developments, like, you know, uh, at the Museum of the American Indian, there was a teach indigenous peoples they teach in, right? And but that's been my onus. And it's not like we get professional developments besides maybe like a controversial implicit bias training across the district. And I say controversial, not because I'm against it, but because other people are against it. And so... For my students, it's my responsibility to continue learning the facts, to not present it in a way where my politics are coming out. I don't believe in saying out loud, I am a Bernie Sanders supporter, (laughs) right? But I can say, like, this man is running for president. I can say Elizabeth Warren is a female running for president. Joe Biden is running, right? So, and it's my job to teach the facts and have my students reach their own opinions and conclusions because... My job is to teach them those critical thinking skills, right? But how can I teach them critical thinking skills if I'm not critically thinking? And when you were little, Annie, you
0: were very curious, right? Yeah. And you've always been like that. Always. And you're, you have a nickname. Yeah. Which uh, means busybody and curious. And I don't want to pronounce that.
1: In uh, Cantonese. But that was, it has negative connotation. Oh, right? yeah. Oh, yeah. Because... In Chinese culture, like, just, just just the traditional Chinese culture, like, my mom said to me one day, why can't you find a man to buy you a house? <laughs> you know, that's just, like, the expectation. And it's, you know, there there's patriarchy in Chinese culture, just as there's patriarchy here in America, right? And so, I can't, like, alienate my mother based on what she was taught, right? Exactly. That's, that's what makes our country divisive. Like, oh, you you're different. Like, so, of course, like, I'm going to call you out and not listen to you. Like, that's how we got in the mess we're in right now. Mm -hmm. So going back to just, like, a bot being curious that, like, I have to understand, like, what's in front of me and how my kids are thinking, especially special education students, and help build their confidence, especially kids who feel like they've never been able to read and have never had, like, Success in school, right? So that's my job to build relationships and to understand what that my students speak a different language at home. Their parents don't speak English. Their parents aren't literate. Um, and this is not to say that their family experience uh, comes a deficit. Like mm-hmm. they come from rich families. You know, seventy seven percent of like teachers, I think, are white women. That's mm-hmm. just the population. And we are taught middle-class values in school, so we believe in middle-class values. And a lot of us did very well in school, right? That's how we became teachers in the first place because we love school. Like, I have never left school. I (laughs) went straight from college to school as a teacher, (laughs) right? And so for a lot of us, it's, you know, and a a lot of my colleagues, it becomes like, you know, who am I going to be in this classroom? Mm. And a lot of my colleagues, you know, of course... Take in the cultures of everyone. But also, when you're coming against, like, you know, not having enough funding as a teacher, not mm-hmm. uh, like New York State owes New York City tons of money. Like, I believe it's in the billions that mm-hmm. they owe New York City in funding. When there's not special education services, there was a kid named Thomas Valva who was just killed in Long Island. Thomas Valva was um, autistic. And his father mistreated him and left him out in a garage overnight. His core temperature in the morning was 76 degrees and he died of hypothermia and trauma. And that family had been investigated and the school district had done everything they could. The special education teacher, the social worker, ACS was called. And they tried to help this family. Hmm. And, you know, there's only so much the system can do. And then poor Thomas Valva was killed by this, uh, his father and uh, his father's fiancé, there's only so much a teacher can do, right? Mm. And so much a system can do. It's a societal ill, like this larger system that, you know, doesn't have enough funding where we can't see beyond what we've been taught, unfortunately, Mm. a lot of the time. And, you know, that's why I have to be a teacher. Mm. And uh, that's why I also have to be an organizer and an activist. And you know, a daughter to my parents, because how can I believe that people are good and can change and like that we have collective value and can mobilize if I don't believe that in my own parents? Yeah, that's true. So let's
0: talk about something else. You have... A Chinese boyfriend. Yes, at the moment. At the moment. I yes. just wanted to clarify <laughs> that uh, because I read it somewhere or I probably um, listened to one of your stories, but I wasn't sure. But you had a white boyfriend before mm-hmm. that and yeah. your mom wasn't happy about it. Yeah,
1: I think, you know, I honestly think that my family, you know, I, I, the white boyfriend was in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And I honestly think that a big deal of it was that I wasn't in New York. You know, as I told you earlier, I I couldn't have meals with them. And my parents were scared that I would stay in Chicago with my partner. Right. And, you know, I you know, they they didn't like him because he's different from Chinese culture. And I, I think my parents had a fear that he was different, you know. But I do, you know, I have to be optimistic and hope that if I did date someone who was white here, that at least they could have dinner here. Um, <laughs> you know, and my parents would get to know them. At least there, like my Chinese boyfriend doesn't speak any Chinese. Yeah, so but, like they yeah. can't communicate at all, you know. So like it's and my my Chinese boyfriend also is partly white himself. Right. And so like my parents are OK with them being different as long as he eats everything they give him. <laughs> right. And that would have been the same thing for my white boyfriend. My white boyfriend would have eaten everything my parents gave him. And so there there is a fear I have that my parents are racist and don't want me dating someone outside of my race. But I also have to hope, you know, there are interracial marriages within my family. And I do have to hope that that was not the reason. I think, I do honestly think the reason, a a big reason was that I was not in New York. And they were afraid that I would stay in Chicago for the rest of my life. My mom literally said, do not marry him. (laughs) Do not be in Chicago. For me, as a parent, I think... As immigrant parents, we try to
0: cling to remnants of our culture. Yes, absolutely. And we try to transmit that to our kids. Mm-hmm. So I guess having a Chinese boyfriend for your mom is mm-hmm. probably an extension of herself, and oh, she yes. sees that, right? Oh yes. So it ha- I don't think it has anything to do with being racist or not. Right. It's like, oh, I could probably sit down and comfortably talk to this person. Exactly. And when I, I mean, they can't it, talk to
1: my current boyfriend. But so. still, yeah. I mean,
0: at least. they they would think that he has some cultural understanding. Absolutely. Although I would say that it's unfair to the kids. And I don't say to my daughter, but I I will admit that sometimes I feel it is unfair to put that kind of burden on them. But again, it's coming from a place
1: where we are just trying to preserve part of our culture. Absolutely. And in an America where we feel like we're invisible all the time, right? Right. You know, and that's why I story tell too, because like if I don't share this, right, about the love languages, for instance, right? Maybe like there's like 20, 30 like Chinese kids who go all their lives thinking their parents don't love them yeah. when they've been being fed food all their lives, right? <laughs> and like, and then they relate a lot to that experience and just the specific, my specific story becomes universal yeah. in that way. Um, But going back to, like, the idea that, like, we're, we want to preserve something ourselves, but that comes from a place where we feel hurt because of our diasporas, right? Mm -hmm. That we want to preserve something because we don't feel like we belong in some semblance Mm -hmm. ourselves. And, like, you know, like, there was a fire last week of the MoCA, the Museum of Chinese in America archives, and eighty five thousand artifacts may have been destroyed in the fire and the water flooding it and you know I was hoping this summer to do research in the archives around the Vincent Chin case you know and seeing the receipts, the letters, the film reel, like all these things that have now burned away possibly and I was crying last night over and I called my boyfriend and he understood but he doesn't quite understand too Mm -hmm. even though he is Chinese but like it's i don't I don't know if anyone quite understands, frankly, because I know a hundred percent that those uh, artifacts were there of my family, you know, and there are some people who do understand that, and but it's because we feel hurt and we don't feel like we have a sense of home, and we are constantly as Asian Americans searching for that semblance of home, and it's with our family, it's with our friends. And for a lot of my queer and trans, my LGBTQIA friends, it's their chosen family because their families have disowned them. Um, And so to and for my adoptee friends. Right. Mm -hmm. And like there there's always a sense like that we will never belong because the larger American society doesn't feel like doesn't make us feel welcome. And like we are never in the race conversation. We are. Our stories are never told, and it's up to us to tell our stories.
0: And sometimes our stories are told by other people, well-meaning,
1: but other people who don't know what they're talking about. Nope. American Dirt, the book that just came out, is a perfect example of that. Oh, my God. Uh. I
0: have so much to say about that, but I think we'll need (laughs)
1: another hour just to talk about that. Absolutely. Annie, you're also in a PBS documentary called Asian Americans, right? So that's coming out May 11th and 12th. Um, so I was very lucky to be able to participate to talk about my experiences just as much as I talked about here And I got to tour around Detroit with Helen Zia who's a lead activist on the Vincent Chin case and learn about my family history through her um, So I'm really excited for it to come out It's a five-episode series that will talk about Asian American history Helen Zia was interviewed for two days straight because she's also an Asian American historian And hopefully it can give just like a broad history. It's all Asian-American directors as well. So that's wonderful. It will not be other people telling (laughs) our big story. And I'm so excited for it because I'm sure there are things that I don't know and you don't know, Sadia, in it that will be really exciting. That's so exciting. And in the end,
0: if you were to describe America in a word or a sentence, how would you do that?
1: America is redeemable. If we all share our stories, our voices, and aren't scared to speak up and to fight for other people. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Annie. This was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, Sadia. This has been great.
0: Thank you, everyone, for listening. Come back next week when we have another wonderful story. In the meantime, check out our website and also our Instagram and Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Immigrantly underscore pod. And we are on Instagram at Immigrantly_Pod. Come back next week when we have another amazing story. In the meantime, stay connected.